Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Sunday Edition. I'm your host, Anthony Corona, and we have a great show today. Later on in the show, I will be talking to Brian Walensky of Orcam. We'll be discussing two of their flagship products, some new developments that are coming out. We'll answer viewer listener questions and really just dive into the world of Orcam. But I am getting started with a name that is familiar to Sunday Edition listeners and all of us in the ACB community. I'll be I'm talking with Clark Rockfeld today. Clark. This is actually, in a weird way, the second time that we're together. I was watching that amazing year in review video and thinking to myself, wow, you know, all that's packed in the video, there's so much more that we just didn't get a chance to put in there. It's been an amazing year for ACB, hasn't it? Uh, Anthony, this is Clark, and thank you for having me on sunday topics again or excuse me sunday edition i don't want to get confused for tuesday topics Uh, but thank you for having me on the show again and yes it has been one heck of a year for acb and you i agree with you 100 there's no way that we could have encapsulated everything from the past year into a a single montage video i mean i was thinking about you know we had stevie wonder we had diane feinstein at convention you know, in video form, we've had so many community calls, so many great tech, um, you know, uh, presentations. It's just been an amazing year. And we just finished up Leadership Week. So did you have a much needed margarita or a big cold beer or something Friday night to celebrate the success of Leadership Week? I I think that more came in like Tuesday night, Uh, just getting past the the formal programming of the leadership conference. That was the big hurdle for me. And this year felt so different from years past because we're used to taking that momentum and that adrenaline from the leadership conference and the legislative seminar. And then everyone putting on our comfortable walking shoes and going up to Capitol Hill and storming up and down the halls, getting our 10,000 steps in and meeting our members of Congress and their staff in person. But this year we had to do that all virtually. And then there was kind of a lull in the office. It's like, what do do we do now? Well, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what it took to translate this over. I mean, we've done a virtual convention. We've done a virtual mid-year board meeting, um, you know, and a lot of the states have taken up charge special interests like BPI have also had conventions. So, I mean, it's been done taking programming, but thinking about trying to set up all these meetings and to take something that we've been doing for years in person and making it into a virtual, were you, were you overwhelmed at first? Did you think, wow, how are we going to pull this off? 
Anthony, I was overwhelmed for for many reasons, uh, one of which we'll get to a little bit later in our conversation here. Um, but yes, it, the, the whole thing was daunting. So going back to, say, November, December, we had our clear marching orders from the ACB board that the leadership conference would be a virtual event. And there was good and good and bad news coming from that decision, right? The the bad news is we wouldn't be able to make those in-person connections with our members of Congress and staff. Uh, but the good news is that we weren't tied to a specific time frame anymore, right? We, we didn't have the concerns of the logistics of travel and of hotel rooms and trying to get Ubers and other taxis with service animals from the hotel to Capitol Hill the day of, um, you know, the Hill meetings. And everyone didn't have to scamper off the Hill to try to catch a flight after cramming all their meetings into one day. So we really worked to embrace uh, the, the flexibility and to innovate the event so that we weren't tied to a single day of legislative programming. We weren't tied to only getting Hill meetings in a single day. And we weren't limited by budget on who was able to participate this year from our affiliates around the country. Yeah, and looking at, you know, the events of, of January 6th, it was an extremely fortuitous decision for the board to have said, you know, let's do it virtually this year. I wonder, you know, if we were in person, how we would have managed with the security and the things that are going on in the Capitol. All in all, it, it's, you know, the stars seem to have aligned again for this to, for this to be a virtual event. And, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of, uh, of January. <laughs> I'm trying to, I consider that to be a continuation of 2020 and we are now into 2021. Um, but yes, it, security, not only through those events, but also just due to the pandemic, it is yeah. very difficult and logistically complex to have an in-person meeting on Capitol Hill. So there would have been tremendous barriers. Individuals would have require, uh, required staff escorts everywhere they went. Uh, it would have been a whole whole ordeal that would have added to the complexity of a, a typical in-person event. So you ended up putting together, you know, three great days of programming, breakout sessions. You know, it, it really felt in a way like an in-person. Um, I did a mix of listening through the Zoom so I could participate and listening on my A devices it was, you know, we've heard this from conventions as well. It was great to be able to sit in pajamas, you know, keep myself on mute, eat lunch, you know, and all of that. But you you worked really hard to get programming that felt like it was in person. What really stood out for you? What really stood out to me was that we weren't hemmed in by a single day of in-person attendance. And typically when I mention that, we immediately go to our members and our affiliates in attendance, right? But the, yeah. the flip side of that is 
we need to coordinate the schedules of our panelists and presenters and speakers and work with their staffs and the logistics of their calendars. Doing a virtual event, uh, so first folks, as, as you may have noticed, we kind of blew out the legislative seminar from one day to two. Initially, it's like, oh, this is great. We can, instead of doing one eight hour day, we can separate it into two half days. But if we're gonna do two half days, why not do two concurrent tracks? Why don't, why don't we go a little bit more than a half day and go noon to 5.30 or 6.30? So the event kind of started to get away from us and grow. But as a result, we had five tracks of programming. In the transportation track, for example, we had our typical government speakers from the Department of Transportation and the, the aviation agencies. But then we also had an airline industry panel with four speakers from four of the largest airlines in the U.S. working on their accessibility accommodations. And those speakers came to us live from Atlanta, Dallas, Chicago, and Seattle. That is something that would not have happened. I, I feel comfortable going out on the limb and saying that that would not have happened for an in-person legislative seminar. Um, so being in the virtual environment, we really had the opportunity to push the envelope on the speakers that participated and the content that was delivered to our members. And all this you did flying solo. Your partner in crime left early December. The position was just filled, and we'll talk a little about that a little later on. And we, ACB, we all know as, as a staff, as a board, as special interest and state affiliates, we're all a huge team and, and there is no shortage of volunteers out there. Um, I know in Florida, myself and Debbie Grubb coordinated our teams and <laughs> wow, how much work that ended up being. Um, yeah. So, but you, you know, you wore the hat completely this year. There was no, you know, passing it off to Claire for this or that. You were the man this year. That's so right. She... She who wow. shall not be named left in December. Um, and no, I, I, I'm joking. We, uh, Claire is, a, is a, a great colleague and is still a great colleague, although she's wearing a different hat at the National Disability Rights Network. Uh, but, but you're right. It, is, it fell to me to pull together the legislative seminar. And I was very fortunate to be able to lean on the advocacy steering committee, our great uh, committee chairs that helped pull together and moderate panels, as well as uh, the rest of the staff and our folks from ACB Radio, who really helped with the logistics and just took a lot of stuff on off my plate. So I didn't have to think about it. So I could really focus on the programming and ensuring that we were getting you know, our ACB message out there and content important to our members out in a uh, you know uh, digestible manner and fashion so it's really something that we we could not have done without the the full ACB community family behind us so how about those those hill visits I know it was a challenge for a lot of states to to get some appointments. <laughs> This, you know, this is an unprecedented 117 Congress is probably going to go down in history for 
all of the various things that they're working, you know, they need to work on and work on quickly. So marking, you know, marking down times, getting these appointments locked in was difficult or more difficult than it has been in past years. How much um, question back from from the affiliates, from the states were you getting and, and how much did you have to step in to help them out? Yes, yeah, so leading up to the legislative seminar, uh, we we did some President's Hump Day happy hours, uh, both Dan Spoon, Ray Campbell, Jeff Tom and I, uh, talking about the logistics of scheduling meetings. And we also did some community events to add content and uh, frame the legislative imperatives. Um, so that was kind of the work that we did there on the on the front end. And yes, we have heard that it's been difficult for folks to schedule meetings, not only for ACB, but from other organizations who have had their events earlier in the month. But again, I'll point out, we're not hemmed into doing meetings on a single day. And we're also not going to build relationships with staff and members in a single visit or in a single day. Uh, one of the, I think, key tenants of advocacy is the follow-up and tenacity. So if we don't get that meeting after a first email, you know, we wait a, wait a week and we send a second one. And if that second email doesn't work, then we might make a phone call. If we're not getting a response by making a phone call from the DC office, we might call the local district office. And I know Debbie Grubb there in Florida, uh, she was working the emails and the phone calls overtime. And uh, Florida, I would say Florida and California, in terms of numbers, are out to a, an early lead on getting their Hill feedback forms to back to the national office. And the one caveat there being that um, on a percentage basis, they have some very stiff competition from Connie Sims and Alan Peterson in the Dakotas. And I say on a percentage basis because, uh, you know, the Dakotas, they're working with two senators and one representative. So they get one form in and they're at 33 <laughs> um, percent. But <laughs> yeah. Florida and California, they're Jeff Tom and Sheila Young, and uh, Debbie and Gabe Griffith. They're doing a great job of getting those feedback forms to the national office so that we can follow up on our imperatives as well as other issues important to members of Congress and our our ACB family. So in terms of follow-up, I want to go in in two different directions. The first being if we couldn't, you know, at whatever state we're in, if we couldn't get meetings with certain representative teams or or our senator, how far out do you want our state teams to to continue to try to, to set up meetings? That's a good question. And, it, and again, I, I don't think of this as a time limited event anymore, right? Uh, because we're doing phone calls and virtual meetings. Um, I don't think that I don't think we should have any uh, terminus on when we are able to schedule these meetings. Uh, because again, we viewing this as a one and done would not make our advocacy effective. What makes for effective advocacy is reaching out to get that initial meeting, 
uh, remaining. I've already made one Harry Potter reference, but on uh, <laughs> on the Sci-Fi Channel, there's a Harry Potter marathon this weekend, as there is almost every weekend. So I'll make another. We need to be constantly vigilant and you know, continue reaching out until we're able to successfully schedule that meeting. And then following that meeting, we need to follow up with a thank you. And as these issues and other issues continue to percolate, uh, we need to continue building that relationship and continue uh, becoming a trusted ally and resource for our representatives and our senators and their staff. So I, I would encourage people to, to keep at it no matter how long it takes. So I know you've gotten a, you know, a good number of feedback forms already and prepare for a bunch load more from Florida. We have a meeting on Monday night to go to finish up forms for two of our teams. What, um, what are you really looking for? What really helps you in, in the feedback information? Sure. What, what really helps us is to understand where the interest of the staff and the member lies. Um, you know, th there could very well be meetings, and it's a little difficult not being in, in the room, but you could certainly have a meeting where they say, wow, this is a, this is a very important issue, and please keep us informed as it develops. It's like, okay, you know, on a scale of one to five, you know, they, they said it's very important and pleased to keep them informed. So I'm going to give that a four. But that could also be Washington speak for uh, I'm listening to you right now and we're not going to take any action on this issue. You know, they, they do a lot of meetings and they try to remain polite. Uh, but every now and again, so for example, Sheila Young followed up with a copying me on a thank you email. And the staff member responded to Sheila that they are following the voting legislation going through Congress right now. And they anticipate the introduction of a disability rights amendment to the voting legislation. And it's like, oh, well, that's very interesting. It gives you a sense of an issue that's important to the member. And they connected with uh, the folks that they met with from ACB on that issue, and they're providing useful follow-up information related to that issue. So I think the real, the real takeaways for us are to understand what's important to the member, uh, whether they affirmatively commit to co-sponsoring any of our legislative imperatives, uh, and whether there's any other issues that might come up in the conversation that we would be able to connect with them on. Yeah, especially if the you know the member was signed on to this certain bill that coincides with what with this piece of imperative. But what about things like you know the personal? We we were sharing our personal stories and feedback where, oh, my grandmother had this, or you know, I have a sister who went to college with. Do you want that information as well, so that when you hit back, you can say, oh, when you were speaking with Anthony and the Florida team. We, you know, we we heard about your sister and, and um, be able to follow up on that kind of conversation as well. Yes, that that personal connection and feedback. Uh, I think that that's it's not necessarily important in terms of legislation, right? Uh, 
but it is important right. for building that rapport and personal connection, um, which could then you know, lead to legislative support further down the line. So yes, knowing things like that, knowing that that kind of inside baseball that you might not otherwise have from looking at their biography, uh, I think that is very important and useful information to share. So for those teams who have not sent out their, their thank you emails yet, give us some, some tips as to what to put in to, to stand out, to be a memorable thank you from, from our visits. Absolutely. So in a, in a good thank you follow-up, uh, recapping the meeting and the legislative imperatives that you discussed, especially if there's one that spoke to them more readily than another, you know, whether it's transportation, low vision devices, or accessible exercise and fitness, um, highlighting that issue and just reiterating why that's important is always good to do. Uh, this year, we have the legislative one-pager up on the DC Leadership Conference website, and it's been there since the, the beginning of February. Being able to attach that to the email, uh, most folks, I think, have already shared that with staff when scheduling the meeting, but just attaching it to the email again so that the staff doesn't have to hunt through the thousands of messages in their inbox that's always a good step. And then providing your contact information and your willingness to work and engage with them on future issues and items that impact uh, the communities of people and their constituents who are blind and experiencing vision loss. Extending that olive branch is always good to include in the thank you follow up as well. Awesome. Byron, while I ask this next question, if you can take a scan and see if anybody has their hand raised and wants to comment or ask a question of Clark. So you have a new team member who's coming in, I believe, on Monday, yes? That is right. ACB's new advocacy and outreach specialist. Her first day will be Monday, March 1st. And what can you tell us about her? I can tell you that Swatha Nandikumar from the greater Chicagoland area is very excited to be coming aboard with ACB. She has a degree in public policy from Loyola University in Chicago. She has experience uh, working as a, uh, working with her university in a call center as well as training callers for the university, which is certainly something that we need all the help we can get with that ACB. I think the national office receives around 2000 calls a month. So having another, uh, another body there to help us man the phones is, and certainly someone with experience working with folks on the phones is always appreciated. In addition to her public policy degree, um, she has experience working with a state representative, as well as one of her senators from Illinois, Senator Dick Durbin. Um, and she's also had an internship with the Library of Congress. So Swatha has a, a good understanding of public policy, the federal legislative system, 
as well as the Library of Congress. So we are excited for her to join our ACB family. We are very excited and hopefully she'll join us on Sunday edition in the coming weeks and we can get to know her a little bit. Put in a plug for me when she gets to work on Monday. <laughs> we'll let her settle in first. <laughs> you don't want to throw it a lion right away. I don't want to throw her straight into the hard hitting Sunday edition. <laughs> so overall, you know, you said uh, Tuesday night was a big, big, uh, you know, okay, it's done. I did this. Look, you know, looking back, we, on it now, we did this. Yeah, we did this. Yeah. Looking back on it now, you know, I, I you must feel so amazingly proud. I, I am proud of how ECB continues to grow and evolve. Um, looking back, we, we are now at a point that, uh, geez, Friday, uh, Thursday, the 25th, that was one year to the day that our folks were on Capitol Hill. And that was the last day of the last in-person ACB event. Wow. Uh, so just let let that sink in for a moment. And actually, uh, on the 26th, my wife and I got on a plane. And a year ago today, we landed in Auckland, New Zealand for a vacation. So we just running a, a, just a day or two ahead of COVID uh, all the way around the world. Uh, but since that time, Cindy Hollis launched um, you know, President's Calls, which then led to community events. And the success of that level of engagement really taught us a lot on how to handle a virtual conference and convention. Uh, certainly the the Florida state conventions and others were test beds for what would go into a virtual national convention as well. And one of the lessons learned that came out of that, you know, we didn't dial it back. It was still eight days, um, 108 sessions, 250 hours of content, but it was really light on video. Yeah. And ACB has leaned into video since the conference and convention. So you were talking about that year in review montage video. Uh, a lot of that came from just the past six months because that's what we had video for. And then we just did an entire leadership conference where every session was on video, not only for ECB, but also Dan's fireside chat with other national blind blindness leaders. Um, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing that ACB continues to do and evolve and grow. And for anyone who missed the leadership conference or missed Dan's fireside chat, um, the video montage or the tribute to Charlie Crawford, all of that is available on ACB's YouTube channel and is archived there in video. Yeah, I wanted to ask you where, you know, what's the easiest way for people to access the information from Leadership Week? So thank you for answering that. And um, let's talk about that fireside chat for a minute, because that would this, you know, it was a historic event. I think as far as I know, it's the first time that many um, consumer group leaders sat down together and had 
that open and frank of a conversation, what takeaways, what did you take away from, from that conversation? My favorite parts about that conversation, um, and I guess a, a little history on how it came together first. Uh, Dan, Dan Spoon spoke on a panel at a virtual conference in the fall for the American Printing House. And at that time, he extended the olive branch to the other consumer organizations and the national service providers that, you know, we need to do more in terms of collaboration. We need to, to come together and work together where we can. Um, everyone thought that that was a great idea, you know, but it, it, took, <laughs> it took Dan and his, you know, gee golly folksy way of just putting it out there. Um, for it to really become something that was real and out in the world, right? So with our leadership conference and knowing that it would be done virtual, it just seemed like a great opportunity to have, because we had the platform and with Tony Stevens and ACB Radio and Kelly Gass, we have the internal knowledge and know-how to pull together a, a successful event. It seemed like a great opportunity to try to make this happen. Um, and I think one of the things that made it successful was that it was just a, a friendly conversation. It wasn't a policy conversation. There were no questions like, when's the last time you stopped, you know, when did you stop beating your spouse sort of questions, right? It was yeah. just a bunch of folks sitting down, sharing leaning in, uh, you know, being a little bit vulnerable to their lives and experiences, um, obstacles and challenges and opportunities as people who are blind or people with vision loss later in life, as students, as adults, as family members, and as longtime professionals in the field. So for me, the most impactful thing to come from that conversation was that Everyone's human, whether it's Craig Meter at APH, Mark Riccobono at NFB, Don Overton at BVA, everyone's human and they're trying to do the best that they can to improve the lives of people who are blind and experiencing vision loss in their capacity. And coming together, you know, strength in numbers, supporting each other as as organizations and taking on the greater the greater responsibility of, of really making our issues, our individual, um, you know, things that that affect our individual lives as a group only strengthens when when we're open to working with the other organizations and the other the other strong out there parties so I, I again kudos dan if you're listening kudos 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 it, it really was go to the uh facebook community page and look at all of the glowing compliments and people clamoring hoping that maybe national there'll be a part two or you know maybe even not for national convention but hopefully somewhere you know along the line they'll sit down again and and um maybe even focus it a little bit on on um policy and what what our members can do to really strengthen the positions that that we're taking as national organizations. And on that note, 
you know, we all know what the three imperatives are. And, and if we participated in Leadership Weekend, we can, you know, we can spill them out uh, quite effectively. But what else are you working on in this uh, 2021? Oh, geez. What, what, <laughs> what is an ACB working on? Uh, one thing that I would like to point out is that the, yes, we had, we had this first, this inaugural ACB fireside chat and much, much like our outreach to Capitol Hill and uh, our affiliates and members reaching out to schedule and having those first meetings with your members of Congress and their staff. Uh, I, I'm with you, Anthony, and I would say if this is a one-time thing, it is a, a lost opportunity. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just plant that flag right there. Uh, but I don't know if it needs to, to be a policy conversation with the, the presidents and CEOs, uh, because at the legislative seminar, we, we had the policy folks and we had the policy conversation and, and got to hear what was important for each of these organizations. And there is so much overlap between what ACB is working on, as well as NFB, especially with our state affiliates in terms of voting. Uh, yeah. But also APH um, in terms of ensuring that students have the tools and resources they need to be successful. Uh, ACB, NFB, and even National Industries for the Blind uh, and the Stop the Wait Coalition in terms of how we can make uh, Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid more effective and more useful for our members and our constituents. In addition to the items that came up during that event, uh, I think if folks look back at the, the five tracks from the legislative seminar, uh, being transportation, voting, digital inclusion, health and wellness, and then the, the live, learn, and earn with vision loss, so uh, education, rehab, employment, and services for older individuals with blindness, Everything you need to know about the policy work that we are doing can be tied somewhere into those tracks, as well as our, our mission of ACB, which is to increase security, independence, economic opportunity, and quality of life for everyone who is blind or with vision loss. You mentioned stop the wait, and I know that somebody had sent in a question um, asking what the thrust of it is, and does it does it seem like there will be uh, some movement in making the you know the process easier for us to go through? And if we had worked and can no longer work because of the pandemic or other things that have happened during this last year, is there movement coming with that? We certainly hope so. Uh, it's. <laughs> It's always it's always tough to tell, but it is a a broad coalition. Um, so we hope that we can minimize you know the five month waiting period for SSDI and the additional twenty four month waiting period for Medicaid, um, so that folks can have the the benefits and the resources that they need to remain healthy and independent. Um, in addition, we know that that's not that's not a cure all for what ails the, our social safety net. So we'll continue to work with partners whenever possible to, you know, 
limit uh, the impact of the Social Security Administration uh, seeking a refund for overpayments that they've given to individuals or so that folks can be encouraged. And I, I think it was uh, Kelly Buckland on the rehab panel that our Rehab Issues Task Force Chair, Doug Powell, moderated. That Kelly Buckland, the Executive Director of the National Council on Independent Living, so that we really have a rehab system and a system in place that penalizes people for looking for work. And certainly our folks couldn't agree with that more. And when you look at the the fear of having to pay in a lump sum over payments that you've received from Social Security, or you fear losing your benefit due to the Social Security disability income cash cliff, it really does disincentivize folks to achieve their full potential. And especially right now in our nation, we need to be encouraging everyone who is healthy and safe to do so to to contribute, to get out there in the workforce and be independent so that the the government and the safety net can be there for uh, those who are most vulnerable and who do need it more than others. Great answer. Thank you. So I know that we have a few hands. I know Paul has been waiting to maybe make a comment, maybe ask a question. Paul, you can unmute yourself and say hello to Clark. And Byron, if you can take a look and keep record of who might else have their hand up. Yep, Hi, Paul. currently Paul is the only one. Well, I'll be quick. Uh, Clark, this is Paul D'Addario. And um, I had just a couple quick things. I'm not, and I'm not trying to create more work for you. Um, I wondered if there had been consideration of having a, a one of the community calls uh, have people who a- attended some meetings with legislators uh, or staff, um, not specifically, you know, representative so and so office was cooperative or not, but sort of for general impressions, because obviously the meetings were done virtually this year, which hadn't mm-hmm. been the case in the past. Um, and I know in our case in Virginia, we had more people attend than usual, even though we're, I mean, Northern Virginia, we're literally a metro ride away. But we also had people who could, um, who could attend from Williamsburg and Waynesboro and further out. And some of them who could take a break from actually working from home to attend a meeting. So there yeah. were some definite advantages. And one of the things we we did, we uh, asked the staff uh, in a couple of calls, how do you like it? And and they tended to like it quite a bit um, for logistical purposes on their part. And in addition, one thing we could do better this year was to demonstrate low vision devices um, or exercise equipment like a treadmill uh, that we couldn't obviously do if we had to go up to Capitol Hill. So anyway, I with all that, I just wondered if perhaps – You'd given some thought to, uh, you've probably gotten some feedback anyway like this, but uh, that perhaps on a community call, folks could share sort of the general pros and cons of this approach. I think that's a great point, Paul, uh, and certainly something that we can consider. So as we continue to follow up with our affiliates and presidents and urge folks to get those feedback forms in, There will also be coming either at the end of this week or early next week, uh, just a general survey 
on the event so that we can continue to learn oh, from okay. it. But I think that, that that a community event would be another great way for folks to share their impressions of the event, as well as, as you were just saying, the, the virtual Hill meetings and how those went. So thanks for the suggestion. Yeah. Maybe piggybacking either its own call or a portion of that call to um, some first timers. Because uh, like Paul said, also in Florida, we had we had a bunch of, of first timers who really got excited, got, you know, got swept up in and last year on the hill itself was my first time and I got swept up and so to see and, and experience excitement of, of someone, you know, I'm not being the newbie anymore. Um, and seeing that it, it was definitely um, awe inspiring and it, it made everything all worthwhile because Trust me, putting together the the logistics of the teams, matching them up with appointments, and I I, I definitely earned a bunch of, of those gray hairs that are on the top of my head right now this week <laughs> or the weeks leading up to it. But yeah, maybe a first timer event too, so that they could share their excitement and and um, experiences. And I well, think they can I, learn a lot from from fresh eyes. Absolutely, and and I don't want to put Byron on the spot, but I know Byron was in attendance for the next gen first year anniversary event Monday evening. Yes. And I know that several next gen members were involved with their state and special interest affiliates in scheduling meeting. Uh, Amanda and Matt Selm there in Kentucky are submitting some feedback forms from their meetings. But Byron, I'm curious if you were able to attend any of the leadership conference and if you're participating in any of the meetings with your elected officials. You know, I I did not. Um I have uh, I have a new roommate that's moving in and so they are um you know setting up all of their furniture and getting everything sort of settled. So I've been focusing on that, but I did listen quite a bit on my A-Lady device and I've learned a lot and I have participated in physical um you know uh, leadership uh, sessions with both NFB and ACB. So um, I, I find that going to the Capitol and speaking with our elected representatives is a great way to get to know them and, and to make them aware of, of, of the needs of the blind and visually impaired. Awesome. Thank you, Byron. I know friend to Sunday edition and personal friend, Lori Scharf has her hand raised. Lori, unmute and say hello to Clark. You can say hi to me too, if you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> hi to both of you so i just um i want to say that i i did really enjoy the presentation that um was done with the rehabilitation task force i thought it went very well um and as a certified benefits practitioner and somebody who does work through an employment network one of the biggest barriers is the lack of understanding um, of people with disabilities regarding the work incentives. Um, and I think it would be interesting to see um, in some states they do the um, individuals once rehab closes their case, they're passed, they have to be passed on to an employment network and in other states they don't have to. So meaning that the state doesn't have to pass them on. Um, so it would be interesting to look at the statistics if there's a better success rate in states where there is a partnership plus versus if there's not um, because when they are passed on the following can take 
you know, three to five years somebody could be followed for. And I find a lot of times it's very beneficial for people when it comes to promotions and, you know, maybe going from part-time work to full-time work and things like that. So thank you. So Lori, I, sure. I, I want to congratulate you on, on your portion of, of the presentation as well. Very, very well done. You and Debbie work well as a team. Um, I have a quick question for you. Do you happen to know statistics wise the ticket to work program for our community? Um, do we do we fare well going through the ticket to work program? Everybody goes through the ticket to work program. It, you when it first started in the late nineties, early two thousands, it used to be you could it was an option to activate your ticket, and it still is sort of, but really the the problem with blind people who need a lot of adaptive technology um you know it could be a problem because like an employment network is not going to provide that but you know i'll put on my advocate hat and say how many employers should be providing adaptive technology and they're not um yeah. you know rather than it coming directly through the vr system um Right now, a lot of the the VR systems, when you sign up for VR, a lot of them, you're assigning your ticket to VR, and people don't even realize that. I like that. Okay. So, it, but it used to be, um, you know, when the program first started, it, it, more, it was more of an option um, because it is a funding source. So, example, in New York State, um, the older blind funding, some of their funding that goes to the older blind program comes directly from the money that New York state gets through the ticket to work program. Thank you. So Lori will be back in two or three Sundays with Debbie Grubb and members of the education committee. So thank you for joining us today, Lori. By the do we have other hands? I thought you asked if she was still working on her thing. Oh, I'm I'm hearing a bit of side conversation. I'm assuming that's Clark. I think Clark oh. un unadvertently unmuted himself. Sorry, I am off mute. That is my my fault. Thank you. Um, that is okay. Byron, do we have other hands? So I'm not seeing any hands at the moment. Um, if anyone wants to raise their hand, the way you do that on a PC is Alt and the Y key. On a Mac, it's going to be the Option and the Y key. And on a regular phone, it's going to be star nine. And if you're on an iPhone, it's going to be on the lower right hand corner in the more menu. You're going to click on more and then you're going to flick until you find raise hand. So if anyone uh, would like to talk to Clark, please raise your hand. And Anthony, as folks are raising their hand or uh, deciding whether or not they, they want to hurl a question in my direction, I just would like to highlight something that Paul D'Addario uh, mentioned, and that was the how staff use the virtual appointments. Um, and again, both for Hill staff and our members, uh, there are some logistical barriers to scheduling in-person meetings. Uh, you know, most in-person meetings probably go for about 15 minutes, and yet, in general, you plan on probably a half hour before scheduling your next in-person meeting um, yeah. for another 15 minutes. So you might be doing two meetings an hour when you are on the Hill or there in person and you are not lugging around a, a treadmill or a low vision 
tabletop low vision device with you on Capitol Hill. But by doing these events virtually, many uh, ACB members that I've followed up with have said that they were given more than 15 minutes for their meeting. It could have been 20 or 30 minutes that they were available to present. They were able to bring more members to these meetings to share their personal stories. And you could go to meetings back to back to back because you did not need to factor in that foot time or hopping in a taxi to go from the House side of the Capitol to the Senate side of the Capitol. So I think there are a lot of benefits to these virtual meetings. And I, like all future ACB events, I would not be surprised if our Hill meetings in the future have some level of hybrid in-person and virtual components. Absolutely. I, Gabe, um, in our team, Gabe was demonstrating the devices. He was in the office. He worked all day and took the meetings when, when we could schedule them. Um, and he was right there with devices and that, that really, we only had one meeting um, and our team had six meetings. So we only had one meeting that was less than a half hour. They were open, they were engaging for the most part. Um, and, uh, and, and it really was effective to have the devices to be demonstrated right there. Um, so tell us real quick, what's coming up on advocacy update and Byron, let's do a last sweep for hands. On advocacy update, well, we will certainly need to get to know our new advocacy and outreach specialist, Swatha Nandakumar, uh, but we also want to have a conversation with ACB Next Gen now that they are one and hear about the advocacy work that they are doing. Um, also coming up in April, there is the deadline for the DKM uh, first timers. So we'll certainly work with uh, Kenneth Simeon and the DKM committee to promote that event. But we're also coming out of Black History Month and the board and ACB staff received some some training for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, So I'd really like to have a conversation to explore that as well as Uh, talk about the measures that we are putting in place to make ACB, as Cindy Hollis would say, a safe, welcoming, and respectful community, but also providing all of our future leaders, uh, regardless of their socio or economic background, uh, the ability to contribute fully to our ACB family and organization. Um, Also, ACB is represented on the fourth term of the Federal Communications Disability Advisory Committee. So we're reaching out to the co-chairs of the DAC, the Disability Advisory Committee, um, to have a conversation with them. Uh, They're representatives of the App Alliance, as well as uh, Black Deaf-Blind Advocates. Excuse me, Black Deaf-Advocates. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this mentorship program that MCAC has um, has adopted and put forth, how that comes to light and, and to see some some new voice, hear some new voices and some new participation. Awesome. Byron, a final look to see if there's anyone who wants to talk to Clark. I do not see any more hands. 
All right. Well, then, Clark, do you get back to enjoying your weekend? Thank you so much for coming on Sunday edition. Any final thoughts before you go? Just thank everyone for your engagement and in participation for the leadership conference. You can access any of the sessions that you missed because we were running concurrent breakout sessions as podcasts, as well as on YouTube Live and Facebook Live. And as always, keep advocating. I'm sorry, before you go, tell them about SurveyMonkey and the other ways they can send their feedback forms. I know I forgot something. <laughs> yes, the Hill feedback <clears throat> forms are available on the DC Leadership Conference website. You can download them as a Word document, but there's also a link to complete it electronically as through SurveyMonkey. So it's really your preference for you, your team, and affiliate. You can either download and complete the Word document and then either send that to advocacy at acb.org in the body of an email or by attaching it to an email, or you can complete the SurveyMonkey form and submit that electronically. And please, one feedback form or one survey per meeting. Awesome. So thank you, Clark. Tell your beautiful wife, thank you for letting us have you for this hour. And uh, we'll be talking soon and looking forward for that community call. Have a great Thanks. weekend. Thanks so much to you and Byron. Absolutely. Sunday edition will be right back with Brian Walensky and Orcam. This is Daryl Lukes inviting you to join me for the Forever Young Oldies Show. Fridays from 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time on ACB Radio Cafe. Each week, I'll be playing great oldies from the 60s and 70s, some folk rock, and some rock and roll. Please join me on Fridays on ACB Radio Cafe. Awesome. And ACB Radio Cafe has some great programming. Often you can find Jason, former technical director for ACB Radio, Jason Castingway. His Artfelt program is awesome. And if you have not, if you are one of the, I would say maybe 10 or 15 people in ACB who have not listen to Jason Castingway's Valentine's Day fundraising concert, please go check it out. What was supposed to be, I think, um, 70 or 75 minutes turned into almost three hours, and it was absolutely amazing. So go to acbradio.org and check out that concert. I am very happy to continue my tech that affects us all series of conversations by welcoming Brian Walensky of Orcam to Sunday Edition. Brian, how you doing? Hi there, Anthony. Doing good this weekend. How are you? I'm good, and um, I would be remiss if I didn't say welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Edition. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to catch everything that Clark was talking about. Such important stuff, and uh, glad to listen that a lot of work is still being done in advocacy. It needs to be. Absolutely. So let's get to know Brian a little bit before we dive, before we dive into Orcam and the uh, amazing products that they offer. Brian, you're um, an ophthalmologist. No, I am an optometrist. Optometrist. So let's start right there. I'm playing the neophyte. What's the difference? Sure. So an optometrist is a medical doctor, an MD that went to medical school and did surgery and did probably a residency and went to school a couple of more years, probably many more years than I did. Um, optometry is a four-year program. Um, it's a 
optometry school. Its residency is not required, but uh, um, but it's becoming more popular to do one. And we do not, basically the biggest difference is while both treat eye disease and eye and diagnose eye disease, uh, opt optometrists do not perform surgery, whereas op ophthalmology does. Okay. So I, I, you know, I always put out uh, for questions for people who may not be able to join us live. And one question that I actually received in multiple forms, more than one, was why do optometrists and ophthalmologists shy away from referring patients for low vision services and for other services as people are either aging out of vision or losing their vision? Um, any insight on that? And I know I'm putting you on the spot, so if you don't have a good answer, it's okay, but I, I don't wanna disappoint my listeners and not ask. Not, not at all, Anthony. It's a great thing to discuss because it is something that's uh, I actually speak about with my colleagues. I speak about with friends and we, and we think about it too. And there's lots of papers written on it. Um, recently, even a paper was written by where I went to school at NECO, New England College of Optometry. Uh, where, you know, why aren't people prescribing, you know, certain amounts of, let's say, you know, magnification, and they shy away from it, just like they're shying away from even maybe referring to low vision organizations, or even referring people over to like, let's say, letting them know ACB and things like that are that are out there for for them. Yes. Um, it's complicated. It's, it's a, it, one is, I'd, I hate to say is sometimes we just get in our routine um from seeing patients we're busy we're moving on and it becomes just very monotonous and and routine for us unfortunately um and that's unfortunate because we are seeing people that need to know what's out there and what's available for them um we also need to as eye doctors think of people as a whole and not just about their eye disease or just about um their eyeball we need to know that, there, that there's a person connected to it. And uh, we have to start thinking about quality of life or things like Clark was even just saying, um, which was, you know, earning life. And uh, what was it? He said the three, uh, actually I wrote it down because I liked it and then I, now I lost it. Um, uh, earn, er, learn, earn, learn and earn, you know, teaching people that this, this thing's out there and just about their whole, the, the whole person and quality of life and not just about that. Other things, you know, sometimes what happens is, you know, we have our aging population too, uh, which is mostly what I see as a low vision optometrist practicing low vision. They, you know, come in very, very depressed and constantly yeah. are looking for treatment, uh, you know, very different than the younger individuals who are um, more proactive, uh, who are um, out there working, who are basically um, more empowered, empowering themselves, really. Uh, the elderly population is different where they're trying to find this treatment. And sometimes I think, I think, and this is just something on my thoughts, really, that, you know, the, doc the doctor there is saying, well, I can give you these injections like for macular degeneration. And I guess the elderly individual with macular degeneration is coming every day or every month for their injection or three months or however that long they come thinking, oh, my vision's gonna get better. It's gonna get better, gonna get better. And then that, that important step of, you know, vision rehabilitation is not discussed because they're just hoping that next appointment uh, 
is going to be the miracle. Is going to be the miracle, or they're yeah. going to come see me as their optometrist, their low vision optometrist, and I'm going to give them that magic pair of glasses. And as a low vision optometrist, even when I get a referral from an ophthalmologist or another optometrist, um, or just from a family friend, I actually have an initial phone conversation with them to let the person have expectations of what I'm providing for them. So I like to just set set that up initially. That's great. Um, Sunday Edition is doing a series of conversations about losing sight midlife, um, but it often overlaps with with aging out of sight as well. And one of the big things that that we've been talking about is the grieving process and or just the whole mental health process surrounding it. And you know, unfortunately, I'm I, from the way it sounds and and in our previous conversations, I know you really get to know your patients, but there's a lack. There is a lack of that like you said, the initial conversation and finding out where the person is, because when a person is still waiting for the miracle, they're, they're really not going to accept that, you know, it's a plateau that they're on. And eventually there's going to be a lower plateau and a lower plateau. And, you know, and, and at some point, most likely no vision at all. So, you know, is there conversation going on in, in the, uh, in the industry, so to speak, to bring more awareness to the mental health side of it? Oh, no, and there, def- there definitely is. There's a lot of talk, I think, just because of even COVID-19 in the past year. You know, our general uh, patients in, in primary care, we're seeing a lot of depression with our patients uh, because of either not being with family or friends. And I think it's it could hit hard harder in our low vision patients. Uh, and it, it's really hitting hard for everywhere, every population. Yeah. So I think it's just a topic that's being discussed. It's something I always like to discuss with uh, every patient that walks in. These days I'm asking a patient, no matter who they are, you know, how you been doing this year? That's my first, you know, my first conversation I have with somebody, no matter what they're coming in for, contact lenses, eyeglasses, or low vision exam. Um, With uh, my visually impaired patients, I ask them, how are you getting on? Who's helping? You know, asking those questions are mental health. It's so, so important. And there is, are things that are being discussed within the industry. I just even worked on a paper because I know we're here talking about technology too, and not to get off the topic of mental health, but awareness just of that, of what's out there for individuals. So I just uh, actually, we uh, helped out writing a paper, which will be published soon, hopefully, um, on what, uh, like sort of a general guide for general ophthalmologists and optometrists, something very quick, easy, something they could follow to make recommendations. Awesome. And I, I definitely don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but I'll ask you one more question. Have you ever come across a, a resource that may be a checklist sort of thing for someone who is either aging into low vision or someone like myself who loses sight midlife? Have you come across a resource or a checklist that, that will help us focus into asking all the right questions that we need to ask when we're often when you're in appointments, you get so caught up in the information that's being you know given to you that you forget to ask you know 50% of the questions that you needed to ask when you're there? Sure. Um, I mean, as as an optometrist, I mean, we and doing a low vision exam, I have a set list of questions that I ask right off the bat. I don't necessarily like for somebody to like have a check thing like that. I sent some people have something they fill out at home and then they bring in with them. I'd rather have that one on one conversation with somebody, whether even if I do it on the phone with them or uh, online or even in person. It's definitely that I would say on both sides, both the patient advocate for themselves and the doctor has lists can um, 
ask the right questions. And it's all lifestyle questions, mental health questions. It's a whole list. I mean, the history alone, uh, part of it, asking all the right questions is anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes in a low vision appointment. In a general appointment, you know, they're coming in, how are you? Boom, let's do this, test, test, test. You're in or you're out. You barely even maybe spoke to your doctor. And that's a whole nother thing why it's so important to get into a uh, vision rehabilitation program, see a low vision doctor, or even just reach out to organizations like ACB where you're getting the, you know, the answers that you need. Um, yeah, more work does need to be done within our field, within the medical field and professionals, but also uh, patients. And so I love when patients bring in a, a whole list of stuff, questions they want to ask. You know, they have their own checklist of what they want to do. And that's great. And I love that because I can work and help out in their goals. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Brian, where you're from, where you went to school. Tell us your story leading up to Orcam, and tell us a little bit about your practice as well, where sure. people can find you and, and so on. Sure, no problem. So uh, I could say my, my uh, sort of life in optometry or the optical or eye world started when I was born. My dad's an optician. So after the military, he became an optician. And actually the day I was born, he was taking his licensure exam. So I could say I was born into it. Uh, but, oh. and, and sorry for the horns here because I am in New York City. So hopefully no one heard that, all that background noise. Um, so that's where, that's where I, I was born in Brooklyn, New York and uh, grew up in New York and uh, finished up school. And then uh, like everybody, else, you know, like most people went off uh, left home, went to college, worked while I was in college, and didn't really think I was going to get involved in my father's business, even though I worked in it as a child, as a kid, me and me and both my brothers. Um, but then, you know, finishing up college, I had I was I I took a biology class, and I got really into the sciences and into medicine, and I was trying to decide where I want to go, what I want to do, and just kind of popped into my head, you know, optometry. You know, I, I grew up in it. I knew it. And it just seemed like the natural choice. And I'm glad I did because it really fits well with me. And I went to New England College of Optometry, graduated there umpteen years ago. And uh, no, in 2000, <laughs> in 2000. And uh, it's amazing that, you know, my, you know, this year, the last year, 2020 was our 20 year reunion. And we were look, all saying back in 2000, wow, a 20 year reunion in the year 2020, because you know, in the optometry world and ophthalmology world in vision, we were like, that's the year of vision. It's the year of teaching people and advocacy about vision, about the importance of going for eye exams. And, and January started out with all of that kind of stuff with uh, companies actually even coming out with, um, you know, media campaigns and marketing campaigns surrounded by 2020. And look at what happened. 2020, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now I say 2021 is, you know, bet anything's better than 2020. So anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you went into your, uh, so let's ask this. Yes, Did either I, of your brothers go into the business too? No, they were, uh, in some ways I say they were smarter. One had, became a lawyer and one actually is, works as an engineer. So I don't know. Uh, but but you, I, get, I like what I do. I really enjoy it. I get to really work with people. And, 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 and that's where, why I like working in low vision. And I'll get to that too, is so I initially then graduated New England optometry, spent a year working and actually got a little bored and said, I knew I want to go do a residency and learn more about disease. So I did, it, uh, I did a residency in primary eye care at Nova Southeastern University because I wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale and be in the sun. 
Nice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, might as well. Get, might as well. If I'm doing a residency for a year, might as well go to someplace nice. So left New York, went down to Florida, and then I wanted to stay in Florida. However, other things happened within my family and had to come back to New York. So I then came back to New York and started in my father's practice, thinking I'd only be there maybe a year or two. Well, about nine years went by, and I was still there. Got bored again, and I decided I, there's something more than just, um, you know, yeah, I was diagnosing individuals. I was helping people with eyeglasses and contacts, but really it didn't feel fulfilling. And I went down, I went back down to Florida to try to find a new sort of path in my career. And I found myself at the Miami Lighthouse and met uh, the CEO of the Miami Lighthouse, Virginia Jacko, who I really credit to changing my life, changing my career and changing my whole outlook on how I'm able to practice optometry and really not just look at it as a job, but look at it as, as, as sort of like my life and helping other individuals and giving me a goal uh, and things to work on. And like you are all talking about advocacy, I totally believe in that and working. It just became part of my life is vision rehabilitation and low vision. And I've sort of got immersed in it from that, from the, my experience at the Miami Lighthouse. I then uh, spent a few years there, uh, came back to New York with because the, they needed me in practice and really my, uh, Ellen, we talked, sorry to backtrack a little bit on advocacy. And I learned how to do that also with the Miami Lighthouse because they'd send me up to uh, Tallahassee uh, to speak uh, to, to Senate there about the importance of eye care because we also had a children's vision program, the importance of catching things early for children. And um, we got a lot of work done. So I learned a lot being there and, my to- and with my time there. We then, uh, I then came, as I said, back to New York and uh, I said, listen, if I'm coming back to practice, I'm starting a low vision practice. I'm just going to implement low vision with, within there. And that's what I did. And you know, here, here I am still. And uh, today I work with uh, a private practice in New York City. I also am adjunct um, uh, clinical instructor at, at SUNY Optometry School, uh, where I work with students. And that's a lot of fun. And I also consult with OrCam Technologies, which I know we're going to discuss. And uh, I initially got involved with OrCam actually before I came back to New York while I was in Florida. While I was in Florida, I was actually going back and forth between New York for about 10 months. Um, I would spend two weeks in New York, two weeks in Florida, back and forth, just because family needed me and other responsibilities that I had. And I I came across a patient who was an older gentleman who uh, had macular degeneration. And he, you know, gave up driving, was talking to me about how his, he didn't want to be a burden to his kids anymore. Um, you know, we were having that talk. And then he mentions to me at the end, this was at the end of his exam. He goes, by the way, have you heard about OrCam? And I go, no, OrCam, what's that? And this was in 2013, 2013, 14. He says, uh, he says, well, I read about it in the newspaper in the New York Times. So I said, okay, let me read that. And so then he said, well, can you reach out to them? I want to know if there's a device available. So I reached out to them. They said on the phone, they said, well, you're the type of guy we want to talk to. Next thing I know, they flew into New York. They met, had a whole bunch of people in a room. And I was part of that first initial meeting before they launched in the United States. And the rest has been history. And I've been working with them as a consultant in clinical and professional um relations for the past seven years. 
Nice. So tell us a little bit about the OrCam story itself. Sure. The OrCam company itself was started in 2010 by Professor Amnon Shashua and Ziv Aviram. Uh, they actually were both in another company previously as CEOs called Mobileye in the 1990s that started. Mobileye, what they did is they utilized computer vision for uh, motor vehicles. So they did collision detection software with computer vision in cars, which is now being utilized for work in autonomous driving. So that company was then sold in late, uh, what was it, 2000, I think, 18 to Intel, uh, right, for uh, 15 billion. It was the largest IPO to come out. It's an Israeli company, by the way, uh, and it was the largest IPO uh, out of Israel today. Wow. Congratulations to them for that. Exactly. I had friends call me up and go, wow, are you part of that? I'm like, no. <laughs> I was a part of that. But you wouldn't the, be on Sunday edition if you were. <laughs> of course I would. Always, Anthony. I always have my time. Awesome. Uh, so, 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 the, so basically, uh, the technology that was utilized for that was a basis for the development of OrCam. And basically what, what their goal was was to create and, and provide, you know, personal AI assistive technology uh, devices for, and initially uh, it was for people who are blind or visually impaired. And they utilized that computer vision technology and just put it into a new, into a new format or a new um, sort of user interface. So I want to focus on uh, the two flagship products that that are here in in the United States. You know, there's the My Eye Two, and the Reader. So tell us what sets apart the My Eye and the Reader from the, you know, the other devices that are out there that do similar, out you know, results that have similar results, mainly using different technology. Sure. So, you know, the different technologies that are out there, you know, as a low vision optometrist, I'm evaluating individuals for any of their needs and wants and, 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 and their goals. So, you know, of course, what we have is we have, you know, magnification uh, and many different types of magnification and magnification works wonderfully when it does, um, whether it's electronic, whether it's a handheld item, whether it's pair of glasses or telescopic. Um, we also have audio uh, choices and audio being in screen readers and computers and our apps and everything else. So what OrCam specifically is, as I mentioned, computer vision, it is a camera uh, that takes a picture and then speaks back the information of the visual world, into, basically putting the visual world into audio. And they have two devices that are doing that. One is a, a wearable and one is a handheld. The wearable device is the OrCam My Eye 2, and the handheld is the OrCam Read, and I'll talk about the differences in a sec. But you asked really about what is the difference from everything else out there. The difference is, is that it's giving you the information. It's not doing anything with your vision like magnification. So it could be for anyone who's uh, blind or visually impaired. So it does not matter on the condition that someone has. So whether someone di has diabetic retinopathy, star guards, or glaucoma, advanced glaucoma, or anything you know, mac macular related, it doesn't matter. It's that it will work, it can work for anyone and also over time as well. 
So that, that I think is, is, is a big difference from some other things that are out there. The other difference um, is, is that these devices also work offline. They don't work, um, they don't need uh, any additional software. They don't need to be hooked up to the cloud or the internet to work and it works offline, which ensures also privacy, but also ensures that it's also gonna work for you when you need it. So I wanna take a sidebar for just one second sure. because you made me think of something I've always wanted to ask an act a professional. I, there's varying ideas out there and, and um, it, you know, it bugs me when people live on mottos rather than, you know, factual based information. If someone is experiencing low vision and they are, are they tiring out their eyes if they try to use them too much to, to read or to, to drive or to do things that, that will put, is there a quote unquote extra strain on the eye? I think you're talking there's two different ways to look at it it's strain and it's also is it detrimental to your vision i mean yeah we all put strain on our eyes everybody does i mean the more we're on a computer screen we have less blink rate we have dry eye we get uh, computer eye fatigue and we just get fatigue in general and i think that leads to headaches and just discomfort or something what we call in my industry we call asthenopia so it's sort of like an eye headache uh asthenopia is just discomfort discomfort around the eyes you're not causing harm per se, you know, to whatever condition you have. So it's not making your glaucoma worse. It's not making your macular degeneration worse. It's not making your diabetes worse by using. It's just that you're getting fatigued, you know, and that's just, you know, and the harder you have to work, the more fatigued you're going to get or the more asthenopic symptoms. And if you break it, go ahead. I was going to say, so to break it to, you know, user-friendly terms, you're not, you know, not reading the package, not reading directions. You're not saving, you know, you can't bank up what you have left in your eye. You're not, you're not using that. That's not the, the way the eye works. Right. Correct. You're not using it up like a battery. So uh, I know a lot of people do ask me that and they get fearful of that. I mean, a big question is also now about, because we're so much on the computer screen and about these blue light coming off the screens. There's yeah. Some, yeah, there's some we don't know. What we do know is that it can help with your sleep patterns because the blue light uh, does uh, have an effect on our melatonin levels. So we do know that has an effect. Um, but we also know that uh, that the blue light where we have, there's more blue light when we walk outside than there is coming off of our computer screens. So I think it's more important to have UV glasses outside, sunglasses to protect ourselves than it is on the computer. So. So the blue light is really more for glare or any sleep issues, if you're aware of, or computer fatigue, but not really for health reasons. All right. Awesome. Thank you for going down that side uh, road with me. Let's get back onto the main dragway and talk about the two, the two devices. Let's start with the MyI2. Sure. So yeah, I wanted to get into the functionality of it and also explain and describe the two devices. So I'll get into the, the MyI2. So the MyI2, again, is a wearable device. The device is about the size of your finger, weighs mm -hmm. less than an ounce, and attaches magnetically to most any eyeglasses. So it's your own eyeglasses. It's not something special that OrCam makes, um, which is important. The only type of eyeglasses I'd say it really doesn't go on is something that's like a, a, like a more rounded frame uh, because the camera has to sit on the side leg or temple of the glasses and the camera will be pointed in the wrong direction, you know, not forward ahead of you. Uh, 
So more like that wraparound style. That's just, it depends on how big the wraparound is. Yeah. Um, that's the only one it won't. The actual components of it, uh, as I mentioned, it's about the size of your finger. In the front end, it has a 13 megapixel camera. On the back end is a speaker that uh, sits next to your ear. And that, and basically the basic functions are, is reading and they can read off of any surface. So any printed text, whether that be from the mail, newspaper, uh, magazine, menu, uh, or even it can read off a digital screen. Even, even if, you know, I know some things might not be accessible maybe with your screen reader or Cam can then read it off your screen. Uh, it also has facial recognition, recognition of products, barcodes, money, and color as well. So it's a multifunctional device and it works either manually through a touch bar on the side or through hand gestures. The other device is the handheld OrCam Read. Now, as I mentioned, all the different functions of the OrCam My Eye, the OrCam Read only does reading. So initially when this device came out, it was thought of Really, the company came out because they wanted to work with uh, other other in other areas. They thought of it for reading difficulties for dyslexia. And then, of course, my my first thing is like, I'm like, well, this device is going to work great for someone with low vision. All right. And then I didn't even think of it for someone who is blind. But then I've had individuals who are blind pick it up and say, this is great and I'm using it. So it's really meant for anyone who's blind, visually impaired, or just have reading difficulties, such things as dyslexia, learning difficulties. We're looking into people with uh, TBI, traumatic brain injuries, um, and possibly uh, stroke survivors as well uh, who have reading difficulties. So we're looking into all that. But I'll explain the device. It's basically is like a large Sharpie magic marker, the size and yep. shape of it. It's just under like, it's just over four and a half inches long and about a half an inch wide. And it has a 13 megapixel camera in the front, which takes a picture. And also if I got to mention about the other one, uh, both of them have a little LED light that works in low light situations. But the OrCam Read device, again, held like a pen, has a button that you push. So it does not work it works manually by pushing a button instead of with hand gestures. And when you press a button, you get one of two types of laser guidance lights that come out. One is a cursor like you would have on your computer screen. So you're able to pinpoint where you want it to read from. Or one is a bounding box, which will bound a paragraph or even the whole page. So you can move yeah. that around. So that's why initially we said, oh, it's, I said it for, for someone who's visually impaired and low vision, but then individuals who just have some good orientation skills and know where to orient themselves and they're not able to see the laser light really are able to use it. The device has four buttons. So as I mentioned, there's a little trigger button, has a plus and minus button for volume controls. And you can also fast forward and rewind when it starts reading. And it does start reading instantly as I know uh, you, you use the device, Anthony, and you could talk about it in a sec. And then, of course, power on and off. And another big difference between the OrCam Read and the OrCam MyEye is that the MyEye only can uh, hook into Bluetooth. So Bluetooth speaker, Bluetooth headphones, uh, you know, uh, Bluetooth earphones. The Read can either be hardwired headphones or can be um, as well 
as uh, Bluetooth. The reason why for the hardwire is because students in school, some schools don't allow Bluetooth use. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's the first thing I'm going to hit off, and I'm sure there would be questions later on on this, but the color on the Maya Eye, in your experience, how good has the color uh, recognition function? How good is it? So color recognition, unfortunately, needs good lighting. And that's yep. what I found. And if you're not in good lighting where the light is not hitting hitting the color, whatever you're trying to get well enough, it's not going to be very uh, as accurate. So that's what I find about the color color recognition. And these are things that are being worked on. So I definitely want to get into smart reading in a few minutes, but um, like you said, I you know I have I've used both devices. I I decided to stay with the my reader, um, and the biggest thing that I found with you know obviously this is a series of conversations I'll be featuring other tech along the way, um, and have already featured some. The biggest thing that I found with um both of the devices, honestly, was the product recognition, whether it be through barcode or just using the reading function. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, trying to position right, finding how you're going to find out what the product is, and of course, if you're using rounded objects or objects with shiny labels, etc. You know, there is a lot of difficulty even using your iPhone trying to identify a product, um, and that was the one thing that really stood out to me is that no matter what, um, no matter what the surface is, if you play just slightly with your positioning, where the light is hitting the, the product, where you're holding the uh, the device, you know, once you get used to knowing where and how, it, it's it's really great for the product recognition. Um, and of course, you know, reading, I <laughs> I use it often for uh, first captures on the computer, which you know, in, instead of having to, you know, get my phone, you know, use Ira or or call someone on a FaceTime and say, hey, can you tell me what's in this screen? You know, I can point my device at it, and, and I've gotten pretty adept at finding where the capture box is. It takes a little bit to get used to. It takes a little bit to figure out, you know, all right, I'm hitting this. It's telling me this. Okay, so I know the capture box must be another inch below, or et cetera. But um, those, are, those are the two pieces where I use it the most. No, that's great. And, and there are multiple uses. And like you said, with the, you know, barcode, or it's just a matter of finding where it is. And that's great that the, it's, it could automatically find you know, the barcode. Um, yeah. Whereas, so that way you could set it to, and, and with OrCam, you can play, you could, you have multiple settings. You can set things into a manual mode. You can set things into an automatic mode, you know, and um, the, another difference, like you mentioned about reading, I just want to mention the difference from reading with the my eye versus the read. As I mentioned, the read is like a point and click, whereas the OrCam um, my eye is a um, gesture where if you point forward uh, like the number one, so that way the camera can see your fingernail, it will trigger the camera to take a picture and then take a picture of the text where you're pointing at. So uh, we, I say, so it automatically does everything else, but pointing is, is really for, for reading. And then if you put your hand out, like telling it to stop, like a stop gesture with all five fingers up, or camel then just stop. And the objects and facial recognition on the MyEye, they're continually, continually updating the, the software and, and it's getting better and better. So um, yeah, there are, yeah, there, yeah. Are, there definitely are so software updates and things are over time that gets better and better. And that's just it, you know, the, the company is based in Israel. 
uh, it's in Jerusalem, and uh, they have uh, you know, over 200 engineers, you know, sitting there working on these on this these two products. You know, I, I'll give a quick tip out there, and and this works for other devices as well, but it, it definitely works well for my OrCam. Um, I took a, a picture frame, um, a 14 by, I want to say 14 by 10 inch picture frame. Um, and I've used that as a, as a, for my mail, for, for, um, station, you know, for sheets of paper. And, um, I just have a little clip on the top and I clip the paper. And, and now that I, now that I've learned where the laser is pointing, et cetera, I can, I can start reading where I need to and, or scan the whole document. And it makes it so much easier. Just clip it up, slip it. You know, if I need multiple papers, I just slip the first one out. Um, I forget what it's called, but it's that, you know, that metal clip with the two, um, right on the picture frame, right on my, on my sheets of paper. And it, it works amazingly. I sit at the desk and just do what I got to do. I think I call it like a bulldog clip or like a, I don't know what you call them, but yeah, like a clip. So you clip it up to, to a board. No, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I have a picture frame, which is, you know, easy. Um, and when I'm out and about it, it, you know, it just takes a moment to orientate myself to where the lighting is coming from. Um, but I'm, I'm relative, I'm, I'm really impressed with the device itself. So there is something called smart reading, uh, which is available on the, my I too, and that's revolutionary technology. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. So, um, one of the newest, actually there's two new features. One is out and one is kind of in beta. So one is called orientation, which I'll mention in a second, but the other one is smart reading. So what smart reading does, it works with natural language understanding. So just like how you talk to your A-lady, uh, you know, so I don't mention that out there, if anyone's <laughs> listening, uh, is that you could speak to the device. And not only does it, can you speak to the device to control certain aspects like reading speed, uh, and, and other things of the device turning on and off different features, but you can also enter what's called a smart reading mode. And again, what this does is you're able to get the text that you want. So let's say you're looking at wanting to read a newspaper and you want to know, well, what are, I want to read only articles on such and such, or I just want to read the headlines. So you can then ask in that smart reading mode, read me only the headlines and OrCam will respond just by reading the headlines. And then all you have to say is reading the article that you're interested in, read the first article, second article, third, whichever one you want to read. You can even say find such and such and it'll find that term, tell you how many of those terms and then you can ask it to read that whichever specific one you wanted. So like say like a menu, so making a choice. Uh, so if you only wanted the desserts, it'll read you only the desserts. If you're only looking for desserts with chocolate, it'll read you only the ones that say chocolate. So you're able to get the text only that you want. And I think that's important also. So you're not having to scroll through a bunch of things. It's more time efficient, I would say. Yeah. And it also recognizes phone numbers as well. Phone numbers, dates, and uh, money as well. Yes. So one of the things, um, that's out there with some technologies, are they working? And if you don't know the answer, then please bring this question to them. Are they working on being able to capture something that you're reading that you need to save for, for the future reference, especially for students? 
So, you know, eliminating the step of needing to have the note taker or whatever other device, Victor Reader, various devices that you'd use in those kind of settings, especially, oh my God, capturing phone numbers and or codes that you need for phone, various phone conversations. No, I'm glad you bring that up. So Orkim does not save anything into its system. So it takes a picture and then it's done. Um, afterwards, you don't say it cannot save it. I do not know if they're going to be going that direction. So it's something I just don't know about. I always, I always say the engineers don't tell me too much or the head engineers because I like to talk too much. So I give it away. <laughs> which I was, gonna, which I was going to talk about their beta um, one, which is orientation. Yes. Uh, they're, they're working on like if I'm in a room and I speak to the device, what's in front of me? It's going to tell me, you know, where the chair is, uh, where the table is. Uh, they even direct me to a doorway or a window. Um, so that's coming in the future. But right now it's in beta. And this will be available on the My iDevice that you already have via the, soft, the hardware software upgrades. You won't have to go out and buy a My i3, let's say, once this no. is fully out of beta. Uh, correct. It's going to be with the My i2. I do not know of any My i3. This is, I mean, this, the My i2, when it came out, was a real big advancement from the original My i. The original My i was clunky. It was big. It was, uh, it didn't magnetically attach. You had to attach this big clunky thing that made it snap onto the frame. Um, and it was heavier. It also was wired. This one is wireless. So the wire hang, hung down to a big battery packet to wear on your belt or your pocket would get hooked onto things. And so this really, for the size that it is, like I mentioned, you know, size of your finger weighs less than an ounce with all the processing power that's in there without connecting to the internet and working all on its own. Uh, it's pretty amazing how small it is. So I'm going to ask you to um, talk about some interesting things that uh, feedback users have given you that they've used it for. And while we're doing that, Byron, can you do a scan? If you have some questions for Brian about OrCam, um, either one of the devices, the company or optometry, um, please raise your hand. Um, so Brian, tell us about some interesting things that that people have done with the OrCam that surprised you or... or uh, or please you <laughs> sure no i've heard some still we get you know we get a lot of user cases of people of individuals uh one woman you know who you know she uses she tells me how she uses it to read with her kids as well as working from home and she what she says it's you know the time efficiency that she has and she's using multiple devices and you know that's a thing too we all know that we have our box of tools you know and so it's going to be you know some things for one thing some things for another while, thing, while it's great that it's multifunctional, you know, uh, definitely it helps some, someone become more efficient. Um, I heard one gentleman say how he liked it being outside of his uh, sort of basement room or basement office. And he could basically saying he's spending more time with his family because he just has the device with him. He could sit at the kitchen table and read whatever he wants versus uh, sitting at his desk and having to uh, utilize other things, all this large equipment. So he's more engaged with his family. Um, you know, there's so many, I heard one woman who actually works as a bartender and she's able to read the bottles, <laughs> uh, with her. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different, different cases of where people are using it. Um, and, and, and it's, uh, very in the workplace and, uh, and that's really an area where I know the company wants to be be more involved in in in, in advocacy for that.
for the workplace? I um I got inspired when I got on the Facebook group. Um, somebody was talking about reading their CD liner notes, and that was that's that was one of my favorite things. When I would get a CD, you know, I wanted to know who was playing drums, I wanted to know who was singing backup vocals, who wrote the song, and you know, all the all the extra stuff that you get. And um, I I you know I miss. <laughs> I missed that part of it. So when somebody was talking about how they were getting rid of their jewel cases and putting everything into books and deciding whether or not to keep the booklets, you know, using the the Orcam, they they were able to get back into into that information. And uh, you know, you can find it online now, but it's it's sort of not the same. That you know, I, I miss so much holding a book. I miss curling up, you know, either in my bed or in the window seat and holding a book. And so, you know, I get, I have that back now with the Orcam. Um, yeah, and now yeah. I can add the CD liner notes as well. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people mention that, how they can now sort of hold a book now or uh, read that for, for like someone like you later in life, vision loss, you know, missing, missing, out, missing that feeling of holding a book or a newspaper or being able to just sit anywhere you want to and read. So that, that's, been, that's been something also. And that's what's great about these are very portable devices. You can take them anywhere, traveling as well. Hopefully we all get back into traveling at some point. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I've been stuck on Manhattan Island for a year. Um, yeah. Uh, definitely. And there's just, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some other uses where people have, uh, you know, in school, so I know students use it using OrCam as well. I've had uh, some people talk about the facial recognition at work because work, and this is what I discuss also about work, work is not just getting the information, but there's a social part of work, uh, the camaraderie of your you know, other professionals that you're working with and other people you're working with. So the facial recognition has been very helpful for individuals. Um, the, you know, the independence of not waiting for somebody to read your mail. You know, I have this a lot with my elderly patients. You know, they're always waiting for either the, the kid next door to come over or whoever to come over to read their mail or their kid or their or their their family. And this they can do right on their own very easily. So where can they go to get where can our listeners go to get more information on Orcam? Sure. So you can go to www.orcam.com. So that's O-R-C-A-M. Dot com. Um, and uh, actually, OrCam does have, uh, you know, history of speaking and talking with uh, ACB. So uh, we've been a supporter of, uh, or they have of, of ACB as well. So there's been a connection between the two. Yeah, there was some great uh, programming at last year's national convention. Uh, I'll put a plug in right now and hope that you guys will will uh, sign up for some level of sponsorship for our coming virtual convention this year in July. It is moved um, to accommodate both the Olympics and um, not being able to do that initial week that we usually do. So I believe it starts on the 16th. Um, but yeah, mid-July, hopefully Orkin will be a sponsor again and you guys will have that exhibit programming. Um, ACB listeners can go to acbradio.org and search through the podcast history and find uh, some presentations with Orcam, or you can disseminate this Sunday edition episode to all of your friends and family who may or may not be interested in the Orcam device. <laughs> no, that's so, okay. so it's, it's all about finding out what's out there. You know, awareness, like we talked about earlier, of knowing what's out there, what's available, 
having a good demonstration of these of, of the OrCam devices and seeing if it's for you. We're doing online, um, you know, um, demonstrations as well. Uh, people, even if they're not users of OrCam, can join up on. We have a Facebook user site as well. They're welcome to come yep. on there and learn more about it. I know Anthony's there to learn about it as well, and uh, hopefully, so I actually, uh, hopefully, we get some listeners, uh, more listeners from there because I uh, put in your show, and I'll uh, hopefully I'll they'll uh, join up with ACB and learn more about ACB as well. Yeah, and you guys, um, you guys have representatives across the country that can give in-person demonstrations as well. Correct. So, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the lighthouses, of course. Um, but go ahead, talk about that process. Yeah, no, basically, yeah, like I said, there's, uh, like Anthony was saying, there's um, sales representatives or representatives with from low vision organizations all over the United States, but not just in the U.S. Uh, Orcam is in over 50 countries right now. And also uh, the devices come in uh, 25 different uh, main languages. So well, 30 now, maybe 25 or 30, forgetting exactly. <laughs> oh, and that brings us to another great feature. Uh, both devices will speak to you in, will read both English and Spanish. Yeah, it will have Spanish detection. So it, it will detect if, if it's in Spanish and then speak in that dialect. Um, uh, or if it's English, it speaks, of course, in English, but uh, it doesn't uh, translate anything, of course, but it will have auto detection of, and it does it automatically. And that's what I like about it. So it's seamless, uh, you know, product recognition, barcode, facial recognition, right to reading is all seamless. You don't have to put it into a separate mode. So it just yeah. all works immediately. Byron, let's do a scan because I, I do see that there's a, uh, a host of participants with us. Do we have any raised hands? Anybody want to talk to Brian? Let's take a look here. Um, I don't see any raised hands at the moment, so I'll just give you guys a bit of a refresher on how to do that. Um, if you're on an iPhone, all you have to do is feel in the lower left corner lower right corner sorry i always get those two mixed up the lower right corner for the more button you're going to double tap on that and then you're going to flick to raise hand if you're on a computer uh if you're on a pc you're going to do alt y if you're on a mac you're going to do option y if you're on a regular landline phone and you're dialed in you're going to do star nine so let's get those hands raised if anyone wants to and ask some questions Byron, my uh, friend and engineer extraordinaire, works for one of the states in a VR capacity. So, Byron, do you have any questions for uh, your own knowledge, or for maybe some of the some of the people you're working with? I do actually. Working? Yeah. Um, cool. So, I had a lot to comment on earlier when you were talking about. Um, people who are losing their vision later in life. I work for the state of Minnesota uh, in the senior services unit working with people who are losing their vision later in life and helping them with all of their technology needs. And I think you touched on something that is so true. And that is that we are more than just the capacity of, you know, the eye doctor or the tech guy or the person who teaches you independent living skills or the O&M instructor. Um, often we become, uh, you know, someone to listen to the, um, you know, the person who's lost their vision to hear their stress and their grief over having lost their vision. Um, and so sometimes these uh, technology sessions wind up being a two hour, 
you know, I, look, I, I'm not, I don't have the capacity today to learn how to learn how to use this iPhone, but man, I need someone to talk to when you end up sometimes just being a listener. Um, yeah. and so I really think we do need to work more on the mental health of losing your vision and learning how to grieve over it and, you know, getting, getting over that loss. No, that happens a lot in during an eye exam. I mean, I have people that come in, they're not even understanding of the eye disorder they have. And maybe it just, we'd have to take time to discuss it and what the treatments are and what the prognosis could be. And then even someone who is grieving their, their vision loss, I'm talking about the elderly individuals um, and older, you know, the initial processes, yes, they are depressed and it's so important to talk with them, but it's something that, yeah, I think, as I got older, I got more comfortable talking to people and more experience about, but when I was younger, I think I shied a little, maybe a little bit away from it. Um, but it, I think people come out of an exam, they need to talk about it. They feel so much better. And it's like a weight lifted off. Uh, there's actually a part of a condition, part of the condition in macular degeneration. I don't know if anyone knows this is called um, Charles Benet syndrome. And when someone loses their central vision, what Charles Benet syndrome is, is someone fills that visual void uh, with a hallucination. Visual memory. Yeah. yeah like a color, yeah. or even a color or something like that. So I get some older patients that come in and maybe with their sons or daughters and they don't even mention it. And I mention it. They go, oh my God, thank you for saying something. I thought I was going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they, they say they don't want to tell their kids because they think they're going to put them in a home. Yeah. I've yes. Had, I've had clients and that happens that a lot that. more than we ever address. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I tell a funny story early on in my process, you know, I lost the bulk of my vision in 20 days. Um, but those first couple of months, there were still some, some usable vision depending upon where the light was, et cetera. And I remember one night sitting late at night with one light from the hallway coming in and suddenly I could see my bookshelf. And I mean, I could see it. Um, and about 15, I, I'm, I was getting all excited. I'm like, okay, I'll be able to see in the dark for the rest of my life. I'll figure out how to read all. I got really excited. And then I, I looked at the bookshelf again and realized there was something on the bookshelf that hadn't been in, been there in a couple of years. And it was like, what, what the hell is happening to me? And it was right. my brain filling in the information, giving me what it think, thought I needed, you know, looking at that bookshelf. No, right. And, you know, another thing I just wanted to bring up just to say from a personal point that I tell people and is that, you know, I, while, you know, I can be somebody's, I always try to be somebody's advocate. I never tell somebody there's nothing I can do for you. That's, that's, it's crazy. There's never, ever say nothing. There's nothing. There's always something uh, because I can be your advocate. I can help you. I can help whatever is out there or even just be, be an ear to listen, you know, be somebody to listen that can talk with or listen to. But I, I always hate that fact that when someone will say something like, oh, I've been to a doctor or this, they, they were told that there's nothing I could do for you or not. That, 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 to me, that doesn't exist. So I always like to try to help. Now, what I was about to say is that I, while I tell them I can't understand what you're truly feeling because I'm not going through that, you know, I, I, I have vision, uh, I see okay, you know, but I do have, a, I did have laser for retinal tears and such and things like that and almost had a retinal detachment, uh, which is why I advocate going for eye exams each year. But um, 
I can help you. I can help you move forward and I can help be your advocate. And th those are the things I can do. We do so have, let me a, ask you. Oh, sorry. Go okay. ahead, Anthony. We have a hand. Go ahead. Yep, we do. We have uh, Lori. I'm going to ask you to unmute and lower your hand and go ahead, Lori. I'm sitting here doing my homework for school actually as a vision rehabilitation therapist, but that aside, um, I find that while there are situations where people's vision get to the point where medical interventions may not be that effective, they fail to refer over to rehabilitation services. And particularly in states where there are waiting lists for services, the longer somebody waits to get referred to rehabilitation services, the longer their adjustment is going to take. Um, you know, in some states, the waiting list might be two years before you even get an intake. So uh, what I'm trying to convey is that as soon as an individual is medically qualified as legally blind, it's very important for them to be referred for rehabilitation services so that the adjustment that um, No, I get what you what you mean, Laurie. So it's it's that it's so that the adjustment could be there as soon as possible. Of course, right. it should be. And we need more money for states. We need more advocacy. We need more everything. I agree with yeah. you totally. I want someone to get it yesterday. You know what they need. Um, I'm a big advocate for you know when someone gets as soon as they're diagnosed with something, even if you know their vision is still. Uh, you know, functionally well, and they're not having any difficulties, I think it's important for them still to get referred. So they understand that what they have better, and they understand what is available out there. Yeah, and I, I think also that, you know, the, the grieving needs to occur, but also, as uh, Byron was saying, you know, the whole coping process and, and living process needs to occur as well. And mm -hmm. I see over my 25 years of doing this, um, uh, just as an advocate, I see so many times where people are being given hope that, you know, this device is going to work or that device is going to work. And yes, it'll solve some of your problems, but they also need to learn to live. No, I agree yeah. with you. I agree with you totally. Definitely. So I want to ask, you know, if someone is not associated with VR services yet, or or maybe they don't ever want to be, um, if they're not in touch with their local lighthouses, how can they try this device out and see if, or these two devices, excuse me, and see if it's something that will enhance their life, if they, if it's worthwhile for them? Yeah, it's just by going to, just go to the website, fill out your information, you'll be contacted um, by a local representative, and then they could set that up for you, whether it's through an organization, whether it's through the VR, or whether it's through just an area sales manager that could be done, or a local eye doctor that might have it too, or even, uh, you know, a rehabilitation specialist. So uh, there, the, the devices are out there. It's just if uh, we just find your location and we find the closest person, and we also have people that come to you. So, uh, or if you're not comfortable with that because of COVID, uh, there's, uh, we can do it online as well. 
you know, for, for the time being. And Orchem has had a relationship with ACB for a while now, as you mentioned. Uh, they're extending the structure of um, discount for ACB members for Sunday edition for a while longer. So if you guys go back to the National uh, Convention podcast, uh, uh, virtual booth for Orcam and listen to that. If you want to take advantage of it, please mention ACB and Sunday Edition, and you can take advantage of those discounts from Orcam. Brian, um, I want to thank you so much for joining us, both for you know the Orcam um, discussion, but also for for talking to us from your professional standpoint. Um, we invite you to please become an ACB member if you aren't already and help us advocate. Um, I want to give you space for some final thoughts. And Byron, if you want to check and see if there are any more hands. Yep, there are two more hands raised. Yeah. All right, let's go for it. We have about seven minutes. So let's let's go with that hand. All right, uh, Deanne, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to unmute. And you should be able to speak. Deanne, 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 unmute yourself and say hello. All right, let's go with hand two, and hopefully Deanne will be able to unmute herself along the way. All right, so we're going to move on to Pam. I have asked her to unmute, and you should be able to speak once you get that done. Yes, um, I'll, I have a question and a comment. I'll try to be super fast. First, the comment, um, I had a relative who was an optometrist, and she did her training back in the probably 1940s, mid to late 1940s. And she was very old school in her philosophy about people with vision loss. And I shudder to think that she might have treated her patients who were losing their vision in the same way she treated me, who never had vision um had a little light perception but that was it and she basically treated me like i was not only couldn't see but couldn't think couldn't take care of myself couldn't 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 and i hope that part of basic optometry training is having to do with how they view their patients uh, who are struggling with losing their sight. And so that's my comment. My very quick question, I may have missed this. If you said it a while ago, I had to wash dishes, making a racket. <laughs> uh, and that is the price of the OrCam devices. How, I know they are very expensive, but I'm just Refer, wanting to refresh my memory, how expense, how, how much do they cost? Sure, Pam. Thanks for your comments as well and question. I did not mention that, but I'll get to that. And I know we have five minutes, Anthony, so I could get to all that. So don't worry. Uh, all righty. So far, and final thoughts too, even. So Pam, as far as you're talking about somebody from the, uh, the 1940s and, you know, definitely things have changed in, in our schooling and our learning, and we do learn more about it. We do have vision rehabilitation as part of our, and low vision as part of our curriculum. Uh, so we are aware and do know. I think just sometimes people also sometimes forget 
and we have to that's when we have to bring up that awareness and remind remind people not only optometrists but all doctors and all medical professionals um <clears throat> it brings me to a story of a friend of mine who is legally blind who when she had her daughter uh, had a sign and she didn't realize the sign was above her head that said you know blind blind patient you know a big written sign and it made her feel oh. yeah Those still it, exist i think uh, yeah no this yeah. was only a few years ago and yeah. it just made her feel marginalized and i get it oh and, yeah uh, so there's a lot of still work of awareness that has to, has to get out there that no uh, you know so it, it's happening it's taught it's just we need to hammer it and hammer it in and keep repeating it and keep talking about it um as far as costs uh the uh reed device uh, starts at about uh, 1950, I believe. Don't quote me exactly on prices because I really don't get involved in the sales too much. And the My Eye device can be anywhere from uh, 3,500 and up. I believe the average is about 4,500. Um, gotcha. Okay. Yes, and it is available through some vocational rehabilitation agencies as well as if you're a veteran, it is available through the VA if you qualify. Um, I just wanted to jump in really quick as my experience as yeah. a uh, assistive technology specialist and say that, you know, some states may opt to not pay for something like an OrCam, especially if you already have a device like an iPhone. Um, so getting funding for an OrCam through state vocational rehab agencies may prove to be a bit difficult. Um, however, there are a lot of other funding resources out there. Um, that will provide you with money to buy these devices. Um, there are grants, there are scholarships, there are uh, nonprofit organizations out there that are trying to help blind and visually impaired people acquire assistive technology. So a quick Google for like assistive technology loan or grant um, may result in some, um, you know, some web results that would be of help of help to you. Thank you, Byron. That is a great point. And as I said a few minutes earlier, Orchem has had a relationship with ACB and cares about all of us, whether we are ACB members or not. But uh, please go back to the national, um, the virtual booth. Listen to those. Uh, listen to those discount structures and mention ACB and Sunday Edition if you are, whether you're in your VR or you're looking for a sales representative or however you're going about it. And um, those technology grants are out there. Every state has some. So do exactly what Byron said. Do some Google searching and look for it because they can help. The process might be a little bit paperwork heavy, so to speak, but it's worth it in the end if you get the device that works for you. I've also Brian. heard. I've also heard of even some uh, uh, grant money uh, that was proposed through the recent uh, COVID funding as well uh, that went out. So being available specifically for education, though. So you can look at people can look into that if they're in school. All right. So thank you so much for coming to Sunday Edition and uh, sharing your knowledge both in and out of the Orcam space. Hopefully you'll come back in a few months and we'll have uh, some more talk about your line of work and, and uh, the process. Maybe we can even create a Sunday edition. We didn't like the word checklist, but a, a reminder of how we can advocate for ourselves. Thank you for joining us in uh, Sunday edition. We'll be back next week with a great show. It is the Losing Sight Midlife Conversation with Tyson Ernst and a very special guest who will provide lots of information and resource. 
I'll see you next Sunday. Have a great brunch and a great week. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email celebrationac. That's the word celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next Sunday. Sunday.